Are you ready to explore the future? Enter our time travel machine and discover the potential of tomorrow's technologies with Anirudan Balakrishnan and Valentin Khan. And here they come, the Utopian Techniacs. From wheels to smartphones, technology has made human life not only easier, it has also adapted to make its use easier for humans. Today's technology will not only automate work and change industries, it will fundamentally change humans and the way we exist. Brain-Computer Interfaces, or BCIs. BCIs are probably one of the most impactful topics we will discuss that is within our grasp that we can foresee. From restoring body functionality to curing mental diseases, communicating our thoughts, all the way to preventing a future where we become fluffy pets of an almighty AI, the potential future for BCIs is very exciting, but also scary to many. So if you're looking for that one innovation that might change everything, solve all of our problem and change life as we know and experience it, then this episode on brain-computer interfaces is for you. Let's explore it. Welcome to the UTX podcast, your source of tomorrow's technology, presented by two maniacs. I'm Ani. And I'm Valentin. And today we are going to talk about brain-computer interfaces. We are going to introduce some context of BCIs and some relevant information on the human brain. We will show end-to-end examples of BCIs and dive into the current state of the industry, its challenges, players, and diving into the utopian day in the life. Let's get into it. All right, so brain-computer interfaces have a history, and that history um, starts off with the idea of connecting with general artificial intelligence. So brain-computer interfaces serve two primary demands. Um, It should fix our brains, uh, because a lot of diseases that we have today are connected to our brains, which we will explore later. And it should be um, something that connects us to general artificial intelligence, and lets us stick along the right. Now, historical applications of BCI sprang from the medical side of it with the need to restore and enhance lost brain functionality, such as vision, hearing, or motoric capabilities. In the US alone, 5.4 million people suffering from paralysis could benefit from such technology. Now, on the other side, Uh, What we mean by a safe alternative to general artificial intelligence, there are two things that we need to understand. First, general AI or artificial general intelligence is the hypothetical intelligence of a machine that has the capacity to understand or learn any intellectual task that a human being can. So a general AI would be like a human, but with infinitely more computing power and instant access to all data in the world. Much like in the movie Her from 2013, um, it's a great movie, we humans are really not capable of understanding the limitless possibilities that such an entity would possess. However, as the old saying goes, if you can beat them, join them. And thus we come to the second point. 
because we humans are already pretty joined or connected to our computers. I mean, if you look at most people today, the way we behave with our phones and computers, you could say that we're pretty much already cyborgs. Most of us carry a device in our pockets that has more computation power, memory, speed, and access to data than the computer that put mankind on the moon. But as Elon Musk pointed, pointed out on his first appearance in, on Joe Rogan, um, I think it was episode, episode 1169, the bandwidth between our brain and the device's brain is pretty small. Currently, we have to think of something, make our hands or voice input it into the device, wait for the response, intake it through our senses, and then process it. BCIs would merely widen this bandwidth by removing any intermediaries between brain and software. So in computer science, there is Moore's law, which essentially states um, how many transistors we can stick onto one chip at once. In the world of BCI, there is Stevenson's law. And Stevenson's law tells us how many number, how many neurons which we can record simultaneously. Currently, this number is doubling every seven and a half years. And let me tell you, this is too slow for us to really progress in that matter before the year 2100. Currently, we are at below a thousand neurons, and uh, the breakthrough point or threshold for BCI, BCI success is led to be at around one million neurons. So this is a truly ambitious undertaking. A few years ago, the Harvard neuroscientist Jeff Lichtman said that in our current understanding of the brain, we um, are, and I quote this, we are at three inches of one mile. Three inches is about seven to eight centimeters. This demonstrates how little we know about the brain's way of working. While we do not need to know exactly how the brain works in order to use it for our, um, for our purposes and in order to manu manipulate the brain in the way we want to, advanced functionality requires further mapping of brain parts and knowledge of their inner workings. Now, let's look into the human brain a bit further. We need to understand it in order to be able to dive into BCIs. The brain can be broken down into the cortex, the limbic system, and the brainstem. Each of these brain parts carries out different function types. The brainstem is similar to a frog's brain and also other reptilians. This is where it comes from. And it deals with the most basic body functions that we need to survive, such as the heart rate, breathing, uh, breathing, sorry, uh, blood pressure, swallowing, facial expressions, chewing, tears, posture, etc. So a lot of things that we unconsciously do that happen automatically within our body. The brainstem is further divided into the midbrain and the cerebellum. The midbrain deals with voluntary eye movement and also secondarily hearing, vision, motor control, alertness, temperature control. Secondarily, because other brains, other, other brain parts are mainly responsible for this, but the midbrain also plays into their function. The cerebellum, however, deals with balance, coordination, movement, and other. Now, the limbic system is an addition that was accomplished by mammals, and it deals with issues related to surviving in a complex environment. These include emotions, identity, self-judgment, hunger, sex, fear, fighting, and even procrastination. The limbic system also includes the two amygdalae. Those are almond-sized uh, amygdalas, whose primary role is in memory processing, decision-making, and emotional responses. And it primarily contributes to sad emotions. 
The hippocampus, however, plays an important role in building habits. The consolidation of information from short-term memory to long-term memory and in spatial memory that enables navigation. The thalamus, finally, has several functions. It is a relaying of sensory signals. It includes motor signals to the cerebral cortex and the regulation of consciousness, sleep, and alertness. The final one and the most exciting one and also the most advanced one is the cortex. The cortex is the part of the brain that contains the actual intelligence and again has several zones, which we know as the cortical areas, each of which have an important function. First and foremost, the prefrontal cortex or PFC is responsible for perception, movement, rational reasoning and more, yet we hardly understand it. Yet it's very important because a lot of stuff that we do day in, day out, especially when we get social, is regulated by the PFC. So, for instance, if you walk down the street and you notice uh, some things and other things you will, no you will not notice, that is your PFC. Your PFC decides on that. Or you decide what your PFC does if you are conscious about it. There are also the motor cortex, which does exactly what, what you think, as well as the auditory cortex. Again, you're right. And the visual cortex. Again, you're perfectly right. And finally, the somatosensory cortex, which is about the touches and the feelings that we feel, for instance, on our skin. Exactly. So that is the brain at a larger level, uh, seeing the three different parts of the brain working together. But now to understand BCIs, we also need a bit of a deeper understanding, a more micro level understanding of the brain, if you will. So the brain is the most sophisticated information processing and transferring machine that we know today. It consists of 86 billion neurons that send and receive information. Now, each neuron consists of axons, dendrites, and a cell body. Now, the dendrites receive signals from other neurons. The cell body processes the signals, and the axons send out a signal. So our brain is a very efficient machine, meaning that it has systems in place that will facilitate repeated actions. That's what we call habits, and that's why practice makes perfect. Now, to make a signal travel faster, the axon will be covered by Schwann cells in myelin fat. Now, this myelin fat allows the signals to be transmitted 1,000 times faster. This means that the more you repeat a task, the more myelin is coded um, is coding the axons involved in the neurological process and the faster the brain can do such tasks. Now, the, the connections between axons of one neuron and the of other neurons are called synapses. And the axon uh, releases neurotransmitting chemicals which dock onto the dendrites and release an electric charge. And this then flows across the neuron's membrane. So in a calm state, a neuron is negatively charged. But once you have an action potential or an activation, this triggers an electric spike that is measured in microvolts by the electrodes based on the right amount of voltage. Now, we also know that neurons uh, can have thousands or even hundreds of thousands of connections to other neurons. Thus, our brain may have 86 billion um, uh, 86 billion neurons but we actually have several dozen trillions of neural connections and over a lifetime the brain has the ability to reorganize itself by maybe strengthening some connections 
and weakening others at the same time, depending on what activities we do. Now, this ability is called neuroplasticity, and it, it differs from person to person. There are several factors that play uh, into the neuroplasticity of one person, and this makes it really hard to get a general understanding of the brain. Now, Val mentioned the PFC, and given that the PFC is a place where we as uh, individuals or as personalities or identities interact with our body, the PFC is probably one of the most obvious and coveted area for uh, BCIs to be implemented. Um, another good area is the limbic system, though I think uh, a BCI at some stage, once we get far enough, uh, could involve all three parts of the brain, so the brain stem, limbic system, and the cortex. Um, another interesting fact about the brain is that much like mushrooms uh, that increase our surface area to house more spores, our brain is wrinkled to increase the surface area because we have quite a small volume. In fact, if you put your two fists together, that is about the size of your brain. So for 86 billion neurons to fit in here, the brain has to wrinkle a lot. And funnily enough, the functionality of just our hands and our faces take up more than 50% of the brain's area. Now, as most neurons communicate with other neurons, um, uh, some neurons, uh, all, all of these neurons together create a bigger system. And sensory and motor neurons, uh, they head down the spinal cord and they make up what is known as the peripheral nervous system. And nerves are essentially just bundles and bundles of axons that are wrapped together in a cord and that send signals up to the central nervous system in its brain. So it is the nerves that allow us or allow the brain to realize what is happening at the different parts of the body. So if you pinch your finger, that signal is sent via a nerve to your brain. They also stimulate the muscles to do something and they can act as middlemen. So it is not just a one-way communication, it is two-way. So the brain receives information from the nerves and it sends out um, actions that need to be done. So this is the communication between all the muscles in the body and the motor cortex that we saw previously. However, we still don't understand much of the brain. In fact, all we understand is the neurons. And then, as you mentioned before, the larger parts of the brain. But what happens between these levels, Whether how, what roles these intermediaries play, we're still not really certain about how all of this uh, pans together. Let's look at a prominent example of a BCI device. In August of 2020, Elon Musk and Neuralink presented their first version of the link and the respective system that enables them to implant a chip uh, into a human's brain. Um, however, what they did is they showcased that with pigs. And um, they put essentially they put a link or a, a brain chip inside a pig and removed it again. They put two chips inside a, inside a pig and all they wanted to show was that you could, um, you could put a, a chip inside your brain and remove it again and the pig would just be fine, which is what they accomplished to do. Um, if we're looking a bit closer into how this thing works, um, as mentioned, the link is an implant or chip, which has some firmware, which essentially software that 
is inside the small hardware piece, which enables the hardware piece to work. The um, chip itself contains of several um, frets or wires, with each of them um, containing electrodes. Um, the electrodes enable us to read out the brain activity, which um, is read out as electrical activity, as electric charge. The wires themselves are made out of uh, film metals and biocompatible polymers, which is important so the brain does not um, consider it trash and essentially puts it away or destroys it over time. It's also important to have uh, hermetic packaging in order to for it to be protected against slime and and, and fluids and yeah, all the things that the brain produces. The electrodes are currently the most promising way to read neural activity. Uh, another thing that the system contains is a six-axis inertial measurement unit for tracking head movement. So remember from autonomous vehicles that these inertial measurement units allow for, for uh, any system to measure the direction that the device takes, in this case, the brain. Then there is sensors for temperature and pressure. Uh, there's a Bluetooth antenna. Uh, which allows to transfer data from the chip to um, an outside device. And there is a battery and an outside wireless charger, which allows you to uh, to charge the, the link. Now, that is the, the actual link device, but another step is how to be implanted. Now, this works um, by replacing part of the skull with the link. And to do this, um, in this case, Neuralink uses a robotic needle, and they, in generally, uh, in general, they use a neurosurgical robotic system instead of a neurosurgeon to to insert the link. Now, these threads are placed using electrodes, um, so they use computer vision uh, to avoid any blood vessels or any blood. Um, and the amazing thing here is that they don't need full anesthesia. All they need is some sedation, um, local sedation, and the entire process is done within an hour. So you could uh, go to your Neuralink implantation station, get it done in an hour and be back uh, within the day and have a link chip implanted. So the, the functionality and purpose of this is twofold. There is an output process, which means reading activity from the brain. And there is an input process, which is uh, processing something into the brain. Uh, when we start with the output process, um, as already mentioned, what we do is we are reading electric signals. There are also other ways to do this, which we're going to discover in, in, in other companies and other systems. But as for now, um, what we do is we measure spike detections of the neural activation. So the signals are then carried on and we need to algorithmically decode them in order to have something that a computer and or a human can work with. It is then encrypted cryptographically and sent via Bluetooth. The transmitted data then serves for a robot or an output device such as a keyboard or a game controller or even a smartphone to um, conduct certain um, certain orders. Yeah. Now this is already pretty hard uh, reading process uh, reading signals from the brain and transferring them to a computer. But what's even harder is an input process, so actually sending signals from a computer into the brain. 
And the way this works is that you initiate an electric potential. Currently, that would be to neurons at either a singular level or to a group of neurons. This depends entirely on um, the structure of the brain and what the electric potential is supposed to do. But a very basic function would be to replace certain functionalities, such as hearing or vision. This would be, which is already quite tough, this is considered basic compared to more advanced input processes, such as somatosensory activation. That would be feeling a touch that you could simulate um, feeling touch at, say, your fingertips or your feet or your back. And even more advanced and futuristic would be to not only store memory and knowledge, but to even transfer data, that is, transfer thoughts and knowledge so that you could actually share ideas, memories, thoughts, and feelings. Let's look at the industry as it is right now with our knowledge that we've now acquired. How does the industry look previously to the hype, previously to the trend, previously to Neuralink coming into it? And there are three different use cases that historically have been already developed and are being used. The first one is neuroprosthetics. So here we use the motor cortex in order to have a remote control of a body part. Um, the motor cortex is one of the most well-mapped parts of the brain. So it serves as a good uh, starting point. Such a remote control helps, for instance, paralyzed patients in order to move a screen cursor or a robotic arm. Um, they could play a video game with this or um, serve um, or, or conduct day-in, day-out tasks. A leading research collaboration in that direction has been BrainGate. Their well-known implementation uses roughly 100 electrodes, and they produce firing patterns based on body activities, which are then analyzed by a computer to understand the input and control, for instance, the cursor. We call this a Utah array or a microelectrode micro array. And this is the gold standard in the industry so far. It's a widely used invasive implant with 100 electrodes that lasts a few years and connects to a metal pedestal atop the head. This connects to a computer in a research lab using a wire. So you can only use that in the research lab. Um, however, you can already use this with the motor cortex to move a cursor to select letters on a screen. A couple dozen people worldwide already have a Utah array implanted in them so far. Right. So the second uh, use case that is quite uh, quite prevalent, relatively speaking, of course, are cochlea and uh, retinal implants. And these are used to recreate a real-life sound or real-life vision. Um, but even here, we are quite far behind. So for a decent uh, hearing implant, you would need 3,500 electrodes. However, most implants today have several dozen maximum 100 at best. So even in these historic use cases, we still have a long way to go. And the third uh, uh, third application is what's known as deep brain stimulation. And these are the first widely used implementation of an invasive technology. And they use a so-called neurostimulator. A neurostimulator consists of electrodes placed in the limbic system that are wired to control in the upper chest. So now the electrodes can fire electric signals to fix Parkinson's or even relieve people of chronic pain, anxiety, depression, or PTSD. So 
think of it like a working brain pacemaker. So today's research area focus focuses on, to, to summarize that, restoring auditory and visual functions, curing mental diseases by tracking and training the brain, neuroprosthetics and exoskeletons that restore motoric function, which is useful if you have spinal cord injuries like paraplegics do or paralyzed patients, and modulation of nerve activity by electrical signals, which we call neuromodulation which can be used against motoric nervous system failure, which happens in ALS, and sensory function failure, which is the cause of Parkinson. Now, the next step of, of research would be human-computer uh, communication. So today we know that the bandwidth, as we spoke before, of typing via finger, be it on your phone or your computer, is about 0.63 megabits per second. So 630 kilobits per second. Whereas to compare it with the bandwidth of the brain or uh, the speed at which we think is 30 megabits per second. And the spinal cord is, has a speed of 1000 mbits per second. So to uh, the next step of, of research in BCIs would be to control machines or smartphones to have this output from human to computer. Yeah, think about the possibilities. If you can go from 0.63 megabits per second to 1,000 megabits per second, we really, we really talk bandwidth here. So the two differences between our communication right now and future communication, according to Elon Musk, is bandwidth and resolution. Now, when it comes to computer-human communication, we can restore the touch of the somatosensory cortex. We can resolve mental or neurological disorders like depression. We are in, in advanced stages would even be able to stream music, memorize knowledge and save it into the cloud. We could also save and replay memories to and from the cloud. So you could essentially upload um, maybe even your consciousness, who knows? Um, now we've, we've, we already know computer to computer communication with BCIs. We can not only do human computer and computer human, we can even do communication from human to human directly via thoughts. Now this increased bandwidth and resolution means that we can essentially cut out any intermediaries in the processing between two brains. So think about when you're listening to this podcast right now, we're recording it on our computer. We're uploading it to YouTube or any other podcast streaming platform. You're listening it um, through your device using uh, your ears and that your brain is then uh, processing this information. Now imagine if we could just directly communicate these thoughts, ideas, knowledge, memories directly from one human to another. It's, it's something else entirely. And beyond just external communication, you'd even have internal communication because given that we can now interfere directly with our own brain, you could now have a massive control of yourself, not just, um, we're not just talking about avoiding procrastination or increased um, self-discipline or willpower, but even things like, imagine you're craving a, chocolate cake, all you want is a piece of chocolate cake, but you're on a strict diet, you know you can't break the diet. So instead of eating a chocolate cake, you could create a sensory stimulation 
to where it feels like you're enjoying a chocolate cake. Your eyes feel like they're seeing it. Your fingers feel like you're touching and interacting with it. Your tongue tastes it. Your nose smells it. Your teeth and tongue feel the chocolate cake. You get all the benefits of eating without any of the downsides, such as breaking your diets, having to do extra exercise. So the implications that this has for just within us um, is is pretty wide. Um, and I don't even think that we could possibly cover all the uh, great things that we could do with BCIs even in in two hours. So, so much on the relevance or the focus of research and the future, but BCIs being a very ambitious technology also has a lot of challenges. And so one of the biggest challenges that we came across is just the very technical nature of, of BCIs and it's in creating a very effective BCI. So there are two dimensions here. Um, one of them is scale and resolution. So scale and resolution um, are how we can interact with the neurons. Scale means the number of neurons that we can read. We mentioned before that um, currently we are not that far with how many neurons we can read. Currently we are below 1000. And according to Stevenson's law, we'd have to wait seven and a half years for this to double. So scale, and then on the other hand, we have the resolution. So resolution is the ability to perceive individual neurons versus the entire brain or brain areas. So this is very important if we want to specific, uh, trigger very specific neurons, create very specific uh, sensory stimulations. Now, this is one dimension. The other dimension is the level of invasiveness. And to date, we have only partially or semi-invasive BCIs and fully invasive BCIs. The, the reason is that non-invasive devices, such as uh, devices that could read um, your brain activity from outside, such as fMRIs and EEGs, are simply not as accurate because the skull muffles a lot of the neuronal activity and the resolution is also usually very limited to either reading the entire brain or a group of brains. And you can't really uh, read a group of neurons or even a single neuron. Also, it's important that um, since neurons don't work in isolation, that you can only correctly analyze them in conjunction. So what this means is that the, the invasiveness means that existing scanners like fMRIs and EEGs are not an option. However, um, there are alternatives that are invasive. For instance, local field potentials or LFPs, they have excellent scale with resolution. This means that they can read a lot of neurons, but they have a low resolution. They take the average of uh, electric potentials of an area of neurons. On the other hand, you have single unit recording. This means they have a very, very high resolution because they can read individual neurons, but they have a low scale because they can only read one neuron. So this debates on invasiveness and how effective a BCI is with scale and resolution is still one of the biggest issues that we face technologically for uh, BCIs. Another big challenge that our current devices face is that when they are invasive, if you implant them into the brain, they need to be robust versus the fluids and salts of the brain. 
uh, if they are not, they are getting dissolved and or corroded by the body. So you need hermetic packaging. And so far as we've seen, devices do not make it over more than a couple of years inside the brain. But if they are living longer inside the brain, another challenge is to make them um, biocompatible so that the brain considers them a part of them. So you could use the properties of neuroplasticity, essentially using the brain's adaptation process to make the device a part of it. Uh, another challenge is that you need micron precision in surgery and activation. So micrometer, a micrometer is below a nanometer. So really high precision when it comes to implanting the device and also activating it. As the brain is a very dense and busy structure. So even if you cut out a piece of inside the brain, you are dealing with a lot of dense, a lot of, a lot of brain structure um, when you're implanting such a device. Another one is instant measurement and execution. So uh, for certain types of non-invasive measurements, there is a time delay in there which um, obviously a, a fraction of a second is a world of a difference when we're talking about neural activity. And lastly, regulatory approval, which um, obviously will be a, a tough call also considering um, public perception. Exactly. So public and consumer perception, reception, reaction is a big issue. So in a 2016 survey um, in the U.S., it showed that respondents were more concerned about a brain implant than about even gene editing. Um, that's crazy. <laughs> and oddly or not, you know, BCIs weren't the only ones. So similar hardware innovations like Google Glass, uh, if you remember that, or, and even Facebook's Oculus VR headset faced some challenges that they, they work just fine, but people are somehow suspicious and the demand for them just didn't pick up or materialize. And with a BCI, this could obviously be, you know, underlined much more strongly, given that it's an invasive procedure and just a, a fundamental transformation of human existence that these devices imply. However, there are some very compelling arguments, and both of arguments, uh, uh, the sources of these come from Wait But Why, and you'll find that, um, Wait, but why offers a lot of information for us. Um, one of them is um, that we already have chips in the brain. We have deep brain simulation, as we, as we saw before, to alleviate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. We have early trials of chips to restore vision. We have cochlear implants. So it's not that big of a stretch to put devices into the brain to merely just read information out to, and to insert information in. Another uh, argument against it is just that people, they just take time to adapt to changes. Um, for instance, when LASIK eye surgery was introduced 20 years ago, you know, they were timid about it. They weren't sure, oh, he's operating with my, on my eye with a laser. And about 20 years ago, I think it was 20,000 people a year. Now you have 2 million people a year getting laser eye surgery. Um, and you have, you know, Similar stories with pacemakers, defibrillators, organ transplants, and you know, brain implants will probably have a, fa a similar story with um, the public being against it, timid, and then slowly accepting it, and at some point even embracing it. So, time and time again, with these technological developments, a big fear is that if the main players are 
the the GAFAMs of the world, so the, the Googles, the Apples, the Facebooks, etc., or in this case, Musk's uh, Neuralink, then you have potentially increased power to those large corporations. And what comes to mind here is the idea that it's the question of perception. Essentially, uh, well, so what comes to mind here is public perception and public reputation is crucial into how people will judge this undertaking. So uh, a common consensus is that if Bill Gates wants to insert a chip into us, I will freak out. But if Elon Musk wants to do it, then I'm at least interested and or excited. Um, there is some truth to that, definitely. And it shows um, that a lot of this is based on the trust that certain corporations or people have with the public and their, their public image, which not necessarily re reflects reality. And definitely something is uh, definitely is something that can be worked on and that can be changed um, over time. Now, another uh, potential limitation, especially when it comes to the advanced applications of BCI, are our current limited understanding of vast areas of the brain. So um, remember back when Jeff Lichtman, the neuroscientist from Harvard, said that we are three inches into the one mile that we need to walk in order to understand the brain fully. So a lot of work has to be done there. And um, in order to do something like storing our memory or um, even thought-to-thought communication, further understanding of our brain will be needed. Another one is uh, robustness. So when a medical device experiences downtime, this is potentially fatal. So robustness needs to be, um, needs to be limited to a minimum. Uh, next challenge is safety against hackers. So that's extra crucial. And the idea of a device being such pervasive and so... Uh, invasive and such fundamental to our life obviously makes it more vulnerable to large-scale attacks. Pacemakers already have been hacked before, so that's a, cr a critical part of, challenge, of a challenge to be considered. Also, there's a lack of regulation, oversight, and regulatory tools, which is the case for all new technologies, but especially for uh, emergent ones like this one. Um, also, privacy. So our thoughts are considered to be the most private parts of ourselves. And owning our brain activity data, taking countermeasures against mass surveillance, and taking countermeasures against someone else owning our thoughts is extra crucial. Regaining consumer trust, as, as mentioned, will be a tough process, especially for a company like Facebook. But it will, uh, it will be essential in order to move forward with such undertakings. The next one is liability, which we've discovered in autonomous vehicles. If you have a middleman between you and something that you're doing, in this case, a chip inside your brain, what happens if something goes wrong? What if your BCI does not record your intentions correctly and damage occurs? Who is responsible? Is it you? Is it the BCI device manufacturer? Is it the software provider that connects your BCI chip with... Uh, a remote control, or is it the remote control device provider? So all of these are potential outcomes of a liability situation when damage occurs. And finally, and also something that we discover with a lot of emerging technologies is this technology could further enhance global inequality. So let's say these costs, these things cost about a couple thousand US dollars. 
poor people will not be able to afford it. Those who can will benefit from it massively in their cognition and productivity, further increasing the economic divide between industrial countries and the third world. Exactly. So, so much to the challenges. Now let's take a look at the biggest players of the uh, of the BCI market. Now we've split this category into two, one being the non-invasive uh, interfaces and the semi or even fully invasive um, BCIs. Now for non-invasive, the uh, existing solutions, most of them all rely on EEGs and they're non-invasive, but as we know, this bears the disadvantage of having a very low resolution and thus it is really limited in what it can measure in the brain and how much uh, brain functionality it could possibly induce or even replace. So the non-invasive EEG stands for the electroencephalography and these base uh, solutions based on these usually I'm sure you've seen pictures of them they look like caps with little electrodes pasted on top of them and these are non-invasive and they measure the brain activity without a lot of delay. However, given that there's only uh, a dozen or so electrodes uh, and these capture 86 billion neurons, uh, one electrode usually captures billions of neurons, just taking the average of these charges. Now, one of the early pioneers was NeuroSky. And um, in 2007 already, uh, they released their first consumer EEG device um, that allowed people to measure electrical signals from their brains. It also um, had algorithms that uh, determine brain activity, such as the level of focus, level of calmness, and even blink detection. And they had a solution called Excellent Brain. And this used measurements of attention and focus to train ADHD patients. ADHD stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, and it causes a lack of attention and sometimes even impulsive behavior. So that was a um, early adaptation of a BCI to uh, help ADHD patients. Another was uh, Mindscribe, and this was a communication device for ALS uh, or Lou Gehrig's, which was uh, which caused a failure of the motoric nervous system. A prominent victim was Stephen Hawking. Um, and as we know, uh, Mindscribe translates electrical brainwaves into speech. Um, that's why, that was how Stephen Hawking got his rather um, famous voice of a computer. It was a Mindscribe that was reading his electrical brainwaves and then translating them into speech. Um, two other examples of EEGs that come to mind are Emotive, Mother Epoch device, and BrainCo. And both of them produce wireless EEG headbands. And these include motion sensors. So you can now uh, monitor, assess, and even visualize stress and focus. And they did this by measuring mental states, facial expressions, head movements, and feeding all of this into an algorithm. And this was used for education, training, as well as prosthetics. Um, another uh, startup that that is not far from here uh, in Lausanne is MindMaze, which is a spin-off from the EPFL um, and was founded in 2011. And this one was centered around EEG readings of neuronal and muscular activity. 
So they were developing healthcare therapies for uh, patients with strokes, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, and dementia. And um, they did this with their Cogni chip. It was an operating system that synchronizes the EEG data and connected it to a computer. And their research are in the areas of mixed reality, games, and motorsports. Um, another startup actually here in Zurich is heading in a similar direction. So Switzerland is trying to establish itself as an innovation hub, at least in this space. When it comes to the big players, Facebook is the most active one in the space. They fund research at the University of California. Researchers there managed to decode words from brain activity and translate them into text, which is then inputted onto a computer screen. The long-term goal of Facebook is to enable users to control digital devices, like smartphones, keyboards, or even AR glasses. Another commercial application is Muse, which is a EEG device that allows you to record and display brain data as a meditation aid. It connects to a mobile app via Bluetooth. Uh, QNeuro is another player, and they manufacture a EEG headset that allows for real-time brain monitoring and measures whether a game's difficulty matches the user's right skill level. It does so by tracking brain state variables like focus and attention. Those were all non-invasive applications, and they rely on reading the electrical activity of the brain. When we look at Kernel, Kernel is an interesting company because it reads the brain activity through two other methods that are not relying on EEG. The company was founded by Brian Johnson, a founder, founder of Braintree, which he sold to PayPal for $100 million dollars or for more actually, because uh, he funded a, a kernel with $100 million. So the LA-based startup uses, as mentioned, two different types of non-EEG technology represented by their two product lines, kernel flow and kernel flux. Kernel flow uses near-infrared spectroscopy and measures the changes in the brain's blood oxygenation. So it does that via the hemoglobin concentration and it records brain activity in real time using this. The other one is kernel flux, and it measures the changes in the brain's magnetic fields, also caused by its electrical activities, um, but it measures based on magnetometers. In contrast to electrical signals, magnetic signature exits through the skull without distortion. However, it potentially carries noise from any nearby magnetic field, which could be a computer, for instance. And this needs to be filtered out algorithmically. In July 2020, they closed a Series C round with $53 million of funding. And they want to use this as for building a neuroscience as a service platform that should simplify the access to brain imaging devices remotely. Yeah, so much to the non-invasive um, BCIs. Now, these are, as I mentioned, you know, traditional machines um, been around for a decade or longer. Now we get into the more exciting, um, namely the semi or fully invasive BCIs. And um, uh, Val nicknamed this the Champions League of BCI because this is where the future is happening, at least for now. Maybe someday we'll get advanced enough that we can have a fully functioning non-invasive uh, BCI. But as of now, the biggest player, we all know it, Neuralink. 
Currently, they have $115 million uh, in funding. Interestingly, $100 million um, dollars, uh, came from Elon Musk himself. Uh, they're still a very small company, about 100 employees, um, and they demoed their Link uh, chip, which was about the size of a coin, 23 millimeters by eight, and it had 1,024 electrodes. And to, as we mentioned before, to implant this device, you would have to cut a 23 millimeter diameter a hole in the skull. And the entire procedure took one hour without general anesthesia, was completed by a robot. And this all happened because of a FDA uh, breakthrough device designation in July 20, uh, about half a year ago. This meant that... Um, the whole process could be expedited. And on August uh, 28th, I, I think, um, they demoed what they called the three little pigs demo. So they had three pigs. Um, I believe one of the pigs was normal. The other had one implant, but it was then the implant was then removed. And the third one had um, an implant. And this implant was now able to accurately predict the location of the link. And it basically showed that in all kinds of scenarios, whether the pig didn't ha uh, had no brain implant, had one and then had it removed or still kept one, um, all of them were doing well. And as we mentioned in our video on Friday, um, one of the big hopes for 2021 is that we can start with clinical trials for humans once further approvals and safety testings have been completed. And in 2017, so on three years ago, or four years, I guess, uh, Elon Musk said, we are aiming to bring something to market that helps with certain severe brain injuries, such as stroke, cancer lesions, uh, congenital, etc., in about four years. So according to that timeline, we should see uh, a lot of interesting things from Neuralink this year. One of the reasons to be long at BCIs, one of the reasons to be optimistic about their developments is the involvement of DARPA. So Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, historically, has been behind a lot of innovations in history. We could name some examples, which could be the TCAP IP protocol for the internet or graphical user interfaces. The DARPA Brain Initiative, and this might surprise you, exists already since April 2013. It incorporates research and collaboration with other military and governmental agencies, universities, and private companies. It also provides funding to private market initiatives. So DARPA tests and uses their research first and foremost for healing soldiers and army workers for those diseases that we've discussed, but also augmenting their capabilities in the battlefield potentially. Their research areas are wide and include building an implantable neural interface, brain activity decoding and visualization, neuroprosthetics, neuromodulation, neuroplasticity training, treating neuropsychological illness, and even memory enhancement. One of the companies that they funded is Paradromics. Paradromics, to our knowledge, currently holds the record with recording 65,000, sorry, with using 65,000 electrode channels for recording neurons at once. It has the longest track record of tracking brain activity from cortex and the highest data rate by July 20. They achieved essentially one DVD per second. 
they are building a invasive device without robotic surgery. So it has to be implanted by a, a neurosurgeon. Another one is EMEC. EMEC has built their so-called NeuroPixels. NeuroPixels are similarly to what Neuralink does, multi-electrode arrays with biocompatible neuroprobes. Um, they measure a total of 16,000, they have a total of 16,000 electrodes in their system that can, that can simultaneously record multiple brain regions at high resolution. They are focusing on brain diseases like Parkinson and Alzheimer or dementia. Second side is another competitor in the space, and they are a visual prosthetics company from Los Angeles. They have developed a brain, a brain implant called Orion. It helps to restore eyesight. It converts images by a miniature video camera mounted on glass into a series of small electrical pulses. These pulses are wirelessly transmitted to an array of electrodes on the surface of the brain's visual cortex, which allows you to see. The last example that we have is Synchron. Synchron has built a product called Stentrode, which is a device that is planted into your chest and connects to electrodes on top of your brain, inside your brain. The, it has a different approach than brain surgery. So you implant it through a stent that is inserted in the jugular vein of the neck. The stent then unleashes 16 metal electrodes once it reaches the motor cortex through the blood system. Also, this is, this is partially funded by DARPA. So a lot of very interesting developments in the invasive BCI space. Exactly. And now as a short outlook, now that we've seen who the big players are, what the challenges are, the relevance, uh, we can take a quick look into maybe what awaits us in the nearer future. So for one, Elon Musk said that the device and surgery together would cost only a couple thousand dollars. Uh, but he said that the device itself will be cheap. So maybe with this new robot, maybe once that technology uh, is sp spread more widely, maybe the surgery becomes cheaper as well and becomes more accessible. Um, and Elon even said that uh, in a best case scenario, we'd have uh, BCI-based human-to-human direct communication in just five to 10 years. And I mean, that's pretty exciting. That's definitely in our lifetimes, hopefully. Um, and BCI-based human-to-human connection. I mean, to say that it will fundamentally change humans is an understatement. Others say that, you know, it might be five to 10 years until widespread use of, of uh, BCI occurs for people with impairments. And they say that um, it, it'll be 20 years until we can see uh, BCI is being used widespreadly for non-medical use, but even that is still very, very exciting. Um, we also think that the future of brain implant surgery might involve a laser instead of a robotic system. So maybe on that front, we see some technological developments that can uh, make this process faster, cheaper, more accessible, more acceptable. Who knows? Um, one quote from Mark Zuckerberg, as we know, Facebook is also involved. Mark Zuckerberg said, I would be pretty disappointed if in 25 years we hadn't made some progress towards thinking things to computer. Um, hopefully in the next 25 years, we do much more than just thinking things to computer. Um, but for now, 
that's the outlook uh, for the next five to 10, maybe 20 years. And that's pretty exciting already. All of this might be pretty shocking to you. At least it has been quite shocking to us. And with this technology, it's going to take some time until it oscillates back and forth in society, leaves its impact, and society might be partially ready to accept that such a thing could become reality. In our case, we have thought, as always, about the utopian day in the future life that would include the BCI. So let's start with the utopian day. I wake up in the morning, and the time that I'm waking up is already preset the night before. So I could already program that inside my brain. I could by, by just thinking. Whatever happens now when I'm waking up is based on my thoughts. I'm controlling the temperature of the air conditioning. Sorry, I am, maybe maybe even your dreams are controlled thanks to yeah. the to the VCI. I mean, the day the utopia begins even before you wake up. Yeah, if 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 you want, and uh, you can also uh, open the the blinds in order to let some light inside your room, and you can play some music with your smart speakers. All of this is based on your capability to use thought and the capability of your device to transport this to um, sensor-equipped devices uh, using 5G or IoT technology. Now, as you wake up, your internal control allows you to control your mood and nutrition. You can create the sensation of eating a chocolate cake without actually eating it, which is very beneficial to your diet. You have the observation that the AI is like you. It's just a different brain part. You can have an internal debate within yourself. Like, for instance, you could say, I'm hungry and want sugar, which is your limbic system telling you to eat sweet stuff because it's not toxic and um, makes you survive. And you have your cortex telling you that you shouldn't eat the chocolate cake because it's bad for your diet. And then your new brain part that essentially gives you an optimized meal plan and diet that helps you to resolve all of it. And it would just feel like one stream of thoughts if you are not decoding them consciously. It feels like one entity and you cannot distinguish the brain parts from each other. When you um, look at your newspaper or whatever will be the medium of news in, in that future, the AI will be improving the world. So AI will be a collective um, system of different algorithms that together um, improve the world, crowdsource together with our intelligence because they're connected with our brains. We all have collectively a say and decide to invest in new technologies that we need for our advancement, and the AI allocates resources and develops them for us. There is no middleman between us and the AI, no decision-making unit like politicians or legislators that are um, in between us. And the only collective decision-making algorithms developed by the AI itself takes our weights and individual inputs in order to decide how it should enhance and improve the world. Now, this is just at a larger scale. Of course, now that you've read the news, um, you've had a great morning, a great night, uh, night of sleep. You woke up perfectly. Now you go to work. And now at work, you no longer have to do boring thinking processes. You don't no longer have to do basic reasoning or calculations or regulatory things. You can entirely devote yourself to being as creative as possible. And now with this machine that is feeding you data from which you can access all the data in the world from the past to the present, now that you have access to everything, you can come up with many creative ideas, inventions, um, 
great ways of improving life, not just for yourself, but from others. Maybe you don't know how to develop a product. Maybe you don't know something. Would you spend hours and hours getting a course and learning it? No, you just instantly download the knowledge from the collective hive mind. You just download the knowledge, the skill, and you would have it instantly. Um, now, in between, you have to, of course, eat because your BMI and your cortex say that um, it's healthy to eat in the afternoon and your limbic system says, yes, I'm hungry, give me some food. Um, you go out to a lunch break. Um, of course, you're um, having a very healthy lunch break. And if you're feeling like a very unhealthy dessert, uh, you can just stimulate that experience. And maybe you uh, go out with some colleagues, but you won't have any fights or any uh, mismatches. You will have a direct transfer of ideas, of thoughts. You will have a direct interaction with you and your colleagues, maybe the person who's um, cooking for you, you can share experiences directly from your brain to brain. There won't be any loss of comprehension. Um, now, after work, uh, you come back home, you're, you're maybe a bit tired and you feel like you'd like to go on vacation, but you know that vacation is only in a month. So maybe you'd restore your memory. Maybe you'd uh, go back to when you were at, uh, in the holidays for the last time. And you can just stream the entire experience within yourself and relive that awesome vacation that you had. Or maybe you just stream music and have a 4D movie experience in your head. Or maybe you can communicate with a friend directly and you can watch a movie remotely, but intimately together. And what are you going to watch? Well, maybe you're not just playing a game. Maybe you're not just watching sports or playing a sport, or maybe you're not just watching a movie. Maybe you're doing all of this with an artificial body. Maybe you're a basketball player, but instead of interacting with the body, you play basketball directly against your friends. Maybe in a movie, you can be in the movie. You can be part of the movie. Maybe you can role play as the main character, as the protagonist. Maybe if you feel like you would like a non-BCI experience, say you want to enjoy a warm campfire on a summer evening while listening to some music and roasting marshmallows, well, you can get that experience at the tip of your tongue, at the tip of your fingers, at the tip of your nose. You can have any experience in the world as you wish it instantly. And, and that to me sounds also... like... Oh, go ahead. And you can also just shut down the device and have the feeling of having your brain work a similar way as it did in the past. And it will be a thing that people just do from time to time. Like you don't have to, but you can just like a campfire. Right. Yeah. It could be like your phone. You have a lot of fun with it, but maybe you decide, okay, maybe I just want an hour to myself. You keep it down. You enjoy it. Either way, I think, This is a pretty awesome utopia, and I hope we get there very soon. Um, despite all the challenges, uh, we pray to the Stevenson's law that we can double our progress much more quicker. Um, and hopefully we can live this BCI utopia pretty soon. And that's it from our side, I think, unless you have anything else to share. Yeah, one last thing. UTX is now also available on Apple apple podcasts nice 
Well, that's a, a good start into the new year, I think, with uh, episode six now. Um, probably one of the most sexiest and uh, impactful topics that we've, we've had. Um, but don't worry, next week's topic will be just as awesome. We'll be looking at 3D printing, um, not just because 3D printing is awesome, because you can 3D print entire houses, but actually just a month ago, if you saw our recap and prediction videos of last week, they actually just printed a human heart that is functioning uh, one or two months ago. So we're pretty excited to delve into what Utopian Realm 3D printing can create for us. Yeah, please stay tuned, subscribe to us, follow us. And as always, stay Utopian. You're maniacs. <laughs>